0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome to episode number one of the Enterprise, Secure, excuse me, Enterprise Linux Security Podcast. We started at episode number zero, and now this is the first episode, and we're going to talk about common vulnerabilities and exposures or CVEs, which is an important topic to understand, especially for the first episode, something that I was going to pitch as a topic <laughs> to Joao, but he beat me to it. So how are you doing today?
1: All good, Jay. I hope you're fine as well. Um, yeah, uh, CVs is like this foundational topic that uh, gets tossed around in the news every now and then. And some of those vulnerabilities even get some fancy names. But um, yeah, this underpins most of the security talks. And people, when they're talking about uh, some problem or other, they're actually mentioning one vulnerability or another. And that yep. gets a CVE assigned. And at TaxCare, we basically deal with that every day. I don't want to pitch the, the services or anything, but this is basically part of the job that we do, is dealing mm-hmm. with new CVs and uh, working on fixes for them and all that. So it's appropriate for this podcast, of ours.
0: It's absolutely appropriate. I mean, you guys are on the front lines of this. I think it's very relevant to talk about it. and And I think your experience is actually very worthwhile, because if you're paying attention to this, on the front lines as all these um, vulnerabilities are discovered and some of which are given names, I think that it's an important thing to draw from. And CVEs, like you mentioned, they're given a designation or a number. It'll start with like Mm -hmm. CVE hyphen and then some number. And that helps people like Google or find more information about a vulnerability. So if you do a scan and, you know, the scanner says you are um, impacted by CVE number, whatever the number is, then you could look that up, you could read about it, what does it take to um, actually, you know, for an outside attacker to take advantage of it if an outside a- attacker can, what the scope actually is, what you might be able to do to fix it or at least um, plug the hole until a patch comes. Yeah, and, um, exactly. Yeah, some of which are given fancy names, which we're gonna get to that because I think we definitely have to talk about these crazy names that some of these <laughs> are given or code names yeah. and, and such. And I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard of a few. Um,
1: just going back to them, to that identifier thing. So like you said, it's CV dash a number, dash another number. The, the first number is the year that the, the CV was requested. Anybody can request a CV from one of the, the registries or one of the, the entities that, um, that give them out. Red Hat, for example, has a service that lets anybody uh, request a, a CV to be assigned for a problem they are discovering or working on or something like that. It's a unique number. But uh, it's important to notice that the first part, the first number, it's the year and it's the year that the CV is assigned. It's not the year that it has to be public. Uh, a CV could be disclosed next week with 2020 in that number and it would still be relevant and it would still apply now, but it had been discovered by the original people working on it last year and assigned last year.
0: Yeah, I was um, on the receiving end of more than a few times of CVEs that the public didn't know about. That was under an NDA where Mm -hmm. we weren't allowed to talk about it, but um, working with managed services providers, they were told about it. So they had a chance to patch the servers before the press gets a hold of it. And then, you know, when the press gets a hold of it, all the hackers that didn't already know about it are, well, we know about it now and we're going to use it. So, um, it is common in this space to know about them ahead of time, which, you know, might be jarring for some people to be like, why does it say 2020? It's not 2020 anymore. Well, it was discovered back then, but it's only disclosed now. So, that's actually very common.
1: Yeah. And that identifier then relates to a database of vulnerabilities. Uh, Originally, it was a national database of vulnerabilities created in the U.S., but uh, all other con- or all other major countries actually created their own and some corporations created their own and now there are over 100 registries and they are more or less in sync with each other and sometimes some conflicts arise when assigning numbers and it has to be worked out. But uh, yeah, there isn't just one source of truth for that uh, number anymore. There are lots of registries any- around and... Interestingly enough, not all of them have exactly the same information in them. Um, Some registries are updated more often than others. CVEs, after they are announced, sometimes get revised or something like that. And then one registry might pick up the changes and another doesn't. So it's important if you are looking for information to look at in multiple places because you might find something new.
0: And I've done that actually. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because one thing that I've noticed a lot is that I get a CVE number and in regards to linux it could be like you know red hat ubuntu debian they'll have their own little script or verbiage around that cve on their website that you can look up so if you google the cve you you might find a red hat version of an article about it or a debian and ubuntu one and sometimes you do find more information, even if you're not running Red Hat, it still might have some information there that you can use. Maybe they have more information than another registry. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a mixed environment and you have multiple different distributions and use, that's also useful because you can um, understand, and this is especially important, which version in which package name actually fixes the vulnerability. So you could check your server to see whether or not you have that patch. And if there's no patch available, you could just keep looking at it and just see, you know, when that's going to come down and make sure you get that downloaded we kind of glossed
1: over this, but that identifier relates to an entry and that entry has some description or another of a new vulnerability or some exploit that has been found for any type of systems. It doesn't have to be open source. It doesn't have to be Linux. It can be closed source systems 3rd party applications. There are CVs on a lot of things. It's not just Linux related or open source related even. There are multiple CVs for Microsoft products. Exchange a few weeks ago had a few. And people are still working on them, and that print nightmare stuff. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's not get into that.
0: Uh, that'll get me heated if we talk about that one, and it's out of scope anyway. But but yeah. no, you are right. So it's not LVE Linux vulnerabilities and exposures. Yeah. It, it it's the word is common, which it's means there are common vulnerabilities, just like the name would imply. Of course, our scope is gonna be Linux, but I think it's unavoidable to talk about other technologies on this podcast. So we'll definitely have to get into some other things here and there as the topics require.
1: And um, also, yeah, um, the information that you'll find on the CV, before it's made public, the CV will just say something like, this this CV identifier has been assigned or requested or something like that. The the wording varies from registry to registry. And during that time, what happens is that security people are still looking at the problem, are still trying to come up with a solution for it, uh, warning the original vendor or whoever created the code that they have this issue and working with them to try to solve it and create patches for it so that when it gets publicly available, so that when you or me that have no connection to some other entities look at the information, we see the, the finer grain description of what actually happened. And there are some solutions available. Otherwise, we would just be giving the, the hackers the, the tools that they need to, to exploit the services. Yeah. And um, so even when it's public, the that description on the CV, has to tread this line of not being overly specific by pointing to actually flaws because there are still systems out there that are unpatched and has to provide enough information that the sysadmin can actually work on it and try to come up with solutions if it doesn't have a patch available, like closing specific network ports or closing file shares or changing permissions somewhere. And sometimes it's really hard to balance that. So... right,
0: right. And I've I've seen weird situations where um, you know, the workaround is just funny or maybe just ironic. Where there was this vulnerability, I think it was with Atlassian at one point with their contact administrator form. And in the workaround, it says disable the contract or contact administrator <laughs> form. Just turn it off and yeah. you'll be fine. Oh, well, great. But what if they need to contact the administrator? What do they do? Yeah. Um, until a proper patch comes, yeah. sometimes you just have to work, have workarounds like that to get through it
1: going back to microsoft if you recall a few years ago they they changed the way they produce they produced information around their security patches they used to have these very descriptive um, security bulletins where they would say we change this file and that file and that file and this affects this service in this way and At some point in time, I believe it was around Windows 8.1 or something like that, they started to have these very terse messages that just said, oh, we updated uh, something in the kernel or something in file sharing or something in user interface, and they don't provide more details. And that's part of the reason. It's to avoid giving out too much information. You can still... But they don't hand out that freely like they used to do and that relates to the same reason why cvs messaging sometimes is not that obvious or clear to everybody.
0: Yeah, I've seen this before. There's just there's a debate about that, right? So you give the more information you give out, the more that it can be used. And then as a system administrator, if if you're going to be installing a patch, you you also want to know what that patch in, you know contains, especially yeah. if your users are complaining that ever since you patched the server something isn't working right, then it's like, well, what in particular could have changed? Well, I don't know, there's nothing in there. But there's that There's that balance. It's really hard to reach, I think, between um, end users and the uh, developers. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's really, really a problem. And um, since means like to have all that information available, they don't want to just blindly install anything that pops their way because It's not the first time or the second or probably not. The last time that when you install an update, you break something that you weren't expecting to break. And then it's more work that you need to fix, and it's more configurations that you need to work, and it's a chore. So if you can avoid that, great. If I see an update that says it's going to change this configuration or this functionality this way and I'm using that, I won't install that update immediately. I'll try to find some other workaround. If I don't have that information, I can't make that choice. So I'll install it blindly and then deal with the aftermath. Um, but yeah, it's really it's tough to to balance both things on on every situation.
0: I think that's part of the reason why a lot of uh, enterprises out there have a testing or sandbox version of their production server so they can you know apply those patches kind of see what happens they could have have some test cases that they can go through to just see what works and what doesn't i've seen some companies actually elect some users that are you know the the cool users the calm ones to be little guinea pigs that's not what they call them obviously but you know they they roll it out in little phases like these people you know they want to be you know using the latest and greatest so that's fine we'll give the patch to them first and then if they don't complain in a couple of days or a week, we'll just graduate that up a level and then up and then up and then up until it's across the whole company. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people have to do things that way.
1: And that's actually the proper way to establish a test environment. And if you just have a copy of the production servers, but you have no one actually using them, you won't spot the problems. So right. you'll have the systems, you know, the the update installs correctly, but then nobody validates that. So having some users, a test group, or something like that, working on those systems, that's the way to do this.
0: Yeah, totally agree. And if, as an aside, it's a little out of scope, but it's just very important for many reasons, not just security. Especially when you're installing an update for any reasons, a major new version, you want to know what's going to change, how the experience is going to be impacted, and you get a chance to uh, take a look at that. But also, you can see what the upgrade process. What it lo- actually looks like because it's just it's no fun i don't know about you but it's just no fun when you upgrade a production server and it just borks everything and you have to yeah. read <laughs> so <laughs> if you have a clone of that server and you just run through the upgrade process hopefully you'll see that problem before it becomes an actual problem yeah. so if you're not setting up test servers you probably should
1: yeah yeah or a complete test environment if you should yep. <laughs> the ideal situation would be to have a completely replicated production system in some closed test environment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Obviously, with the, the, the current outside dependencies that everybody has on identity providers or cloud providers or something like that, it's, this gets harder and harder to replicate. But it should still be the goal to, mm-hmm. to try to achieve.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about resume. <clears throat> no, we're not going to be doing a career development <laughs> section on this podcast, but I think resume padding is something yeah. that happens, and we should probably talk about that too.
1: Yeah, so we're having we're having more and more CVEs popping up all the time. So the rate that they are being publicized or created or requested, all of that has been growing and growing, especially in the last couple of years. Things have been hectic on this field. It, a week doesn't go by that you have five or six new CVEs that you need to deal with, and it's always important stuff. It, It's always a mess to deal, it will break something and you have to clean it up. And basically this might be one of the reasons why CVE is reaching its limits. And the reason why we're, one of the reasons why we're getting so many CVEs, first is because more people are looking and that's always good and more security researchers are paying attention to, to code and that's always great. But then you also have what you just called correctly, resume padding. And I invite uh, whoever is interested in the, in the topic to look up some a presentation by Greg Crow Hartman on CVs being dead and long-lived CVs. If you Google that, you'll find it quickly on YouTube. Um it's really interesting uh, presentation. But he mentioned CV, CV, uh, resume padding is one of the problems. And what is resume padding? Imagine you're trying to break into the security research field. You want to have something to show to the interviewer. So it is, it's amazing when you get to the interview and you have um, founder or discovered the CVE number, so and so on the Linux kernel. And that's great. This guy looked at the kernel, he found a problem, he found some solutions, he worked this out. So he's probably a great guy and he knows security and all that. But in the end, it might be something really stupid in the code, some condition that will never happen in production in a million years, something that would never be triggered. And the new CV was assigned and now you get all the Linux distributions dealing with the new CV popping up that they are mandated to include in their kernels by their own compliance teams. And now it affects the whole industry. And it was something that would never be a problem. It was something that uh, Greg, on his presentation, he mentions uh, something really stupid, which was, if at boot time we cannot allocate 128 bytes because we're out of memory, we should not continue. Yeah, if you can't allocate 128 bytes, you have bigger problems than that. Uh, That's not a security (laughs) issue it would yeah. crash anyway. So, yeah, a CVE was created for that and that's a condition that will never bother any other system and that created patches on Fedora, that created patches on NetApp on lots of of distributions which were then reverted a few time a few time after that and it was just a mess with something that would never be an issue. And some right. CVEs are like that people yeah. went to to show them to show themselves up they went to promote themselves so what better way than having their name on the on a new cv and that's resume yep. padding and that's, that's an that's issue the that, thing. Uh, that the system yeah. has
0: so it's kind of like a vulnerability hypothetically where it requires a flash drive to be inserted with a very special named file at the root of that flash drive <laughs> And it's like, okay, if, if the person was able to get past security to the data center and put a flash drive into the server, there's bigger problems than uh, that vulnerability. And I would argue that's not a vulnerability. Come on, don't let your, don't let people in your data center that you don't know why they're there. It's probably uh, the A couple problem. of years
1: ago, where there was a CV filed against the, um, the floppy disk uh, driver on the Linux kernel.
0: Oh, I was just yeah. thinking about that too. Yeah, yeah that was the v- it was especially the VMware. I think even uh, QEMU, if I'm not mistaken great.
1: There's a vulnerability there. Now it's fixed. That's amazing. But yeah, how many people still use floppy disks in production?
0: Not very many. The only the (laughs) only time I could ever think of that I think the last time I've used one was when I was updating an old PowerEdge server that was still in production. And it needed a BIOS update, but it had to be from a floppy disk. <laughs> and it was like, really? I can't believe it. You know, I'm getting I'm trying to source the USB floppy disk because none of my or drive because none of my computers have that. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. And then I'm <laughs> downloading this floppy drive image and or floppy disk image, putting it on the disk, and then it's like, really, wow, okay. Um that and is immediately high. and, I mean, and immediately
1: as I said that who was using a floppy disk, I remember some issues boeing had the the airplane maker Mm -hmm. and they use floppies on some of their systems in the airplane so
0: yeah they use floppies i don't know if i want to fly anymore they're they're powered i mean like i like we're flying in a plane and then the clip on the disc gets stuck in the reader and they can't get the right and you have to put your
1: finger there and just wag it a bit up and down so that their head can get through that sector
0: a paper clip and kind of just pull the metal clip out of there. Oh boy, I I do not miss those times at all. Fun, fun, fun. Yeah. And, you know, I think to to piggyback off of that a little bit is is that um, we were talking off camera about the fact that some system administrators don't really have a choice, right? So they they have a vulnerability that's been reported. Their organization requires them to answer the call and get that patched. But even if that vulnerability is something that, you know, the planets have to be aligned in just the right way, and there has to be a solar flare at just the right time or whatever it is, but they have to patch it. So when you have resume padding, it kind of seems to me that's going to cause administrators a lot more work for no apparent gain. And that could probably cause um, cost organizations a lot of money in hiring more people to apply these patches when it's probably arguable which patches were the most likely to uh, cause an actual issue.
1: And it's not just uh, the resume padding. There is some stuff with compliance there as well. Some organizations have rules that say that if a vulnerability pops up, a a new CV pops up with a score higher than, say, 5 or something like that. And yes, CVs have a score, and I'll just get back to that in a minute. But Mm -hmm. if a CV pops up with a score higher than 5, you have to install it immediately. You can't wait. Nothing has to to wait for that. You have to deploy that. Red Hat for example has a policy that says that their Red Hat Enterprise Linux has to get all the security related CVEs. They have to to get into the into the kernel. So if a new one pops up, it might be something stupid, but it goes in. And if it's then reverted a few days afterwards, then the revert gets in as well. But in the meantime you already had some updates go out and you had some customers deploy that new version and all that. So it's already a hassle. And i just briefly mentioned the the scores we haven't spoken about that yet uh, cvs get assigned the score when you request a cv you explain the problem the registry will assign you a score it's a number it goes between one and ten usually with ten being the most dangerous or highest risk and zero being less risk or no risk at all And there is usually more than one number. One is for risk, the other is for impact. So impact is the number of systems that can be directly affected by it or type of distribution or number of distributions and all that. And uh, the other one reflects the the actual danger, whether it's data exfiltration or with uh, denial of service or something like that. Um, so yeah, the CVs get assigned that number. It's highly debatable how the number is assigned. It's very subjective. Some registries assign them, will assign them one number, others will assign it another, and it's not always easy to to understand why that happens. But that will affect the the companies that have specific policies around that uh, that severity score, and will make those. Uh, those organizations deploy their patches even if it's not something that would directly impact them
0: yeah, so it's really important to take a look at those um, factors when you're, you know, if, assuming you have a choice, you're not just patching all the mm-hmm. things as soon as the patch comes in, but some of these are more likely to cause a problem for you, and some are not as likely, and I don't know about you, but remote code execution, oh gosh, as soon as I hear that, um, <laughs> that's a big deal, I, I, that, that's, that's one of down. the most scary types of vulnerabilities yeah. out there, that it just, just, you know, Executing code remotely, that's that's what a hacker really wants to be able to do. And that's like um, direct line of access there for them yeah. to do that. So that's always a bad thing too.
1: Getting a remote shell with the root privileges without oh anything else, that's, yeah, that's game over.
0: Yeah. Another thing too is vulnerability chaining. So there could always be like a vulnerability that requires you to already be on the system which you could Mm -hmm. argue, well, yeah, they have to already be on the system, but if there's a vulnerability in addition that kind of they could chain to get into the system, then that one vulnerability that wasn't remotely executable now is when combined with another vulnerability. So vulnerability chaining, I think is something that a lot of people don't really take into account that it might seem like it's not a big deal, but it could be if the, and I think that's what a lot of hackers do, if not most, they try to chain things together to um, get the desired output. So that root shell is the desired goal. So to get there, there might be a few vulnerabilities from the start to um, actually getting into the system. So that following through and, and trying to think like that is gonna help you understand exactly how they do what they do.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things that we see at TechScare uh, a lot. Sometimes it takes a very long time to for you for an organization to patch against a a non-vulnerability, either because they weren't aware that it actually affected them or because they just didn't have the the maintenance window open to do that. But it takes a long time. And then another one pops in that piggybacking on the first one will lead to to greater risk and to greater damage. So, yeah, if you suspect that you are going to be affected by a specific one, this is sometimes tricky to, to actually detect. So, for example, I don't know, OpenSSL or libcurl or something like that. Many applications use that behind the scenes. Your web browser right now, it uses libcurl. It pops up and in the background it calls its functions and it will depend on libcurl to get resources across the internet. And if a new vulnerability pops up against libcurl, probably your Chrome or your Firefox or whatever vendor, they will not tell you they have a vulnerability even if they use libcurl. So you will get a new uh, update to Firefox or to Chrome or something like that, and you will never know that you were vulnerable to libcurl during that whole time. You just got a new update for your browser. But in the meantime, it was there, and if some other vulnerability let somebody into the system without privileges, they they might have used that libcurl presence there to escalate. So it's not always that easy to understand when you're actually vulnerable to one or not. So our best advice is just to patch everything and patch uh, all the time. And yeah, don't take, uh, don't take unnecessary risks there.
0: And and that's the part that I feel a lot of organizations out there have the biggest problem with, because when they hear patch, they hear reboot. When they hear reboot, they think, oh no, like my customers are going to be disconnected and in a perfect world, they would have had, you know, a load balancer and multiple different servers. So they could kind of roll the update one at a time and the users would never know the difference, but it's, It's just strange how rare that is, right? Like how many companies don't do that? They have, maybe they have good backups. They could get up and running quickly, but they have one server. If that one server goes down, they can't reboot it. So I would talk to clients and tell them, you know, you really do need to patch this. It's very important because you, I checked your system. You are impacted by this and it's only a matter of time. And yeah, maybe we could do it next month. Um, or maybe the month after that i I think the new release of our product will be out and we should slow down in a couple of months i'm thinking what i just told you it's critical and then what's funny is they'll get you know owned by a by one of these and then you know what why wasn't something done? We tried, we told you like five times you need to get this patched right now. It just seems like there's this battle between system administrators, security professionals and their own CEOs and trying to get the budget or the approval to get this done. And I'm here to tell you, don't wait, you will regret it. If you don't regret it this time, it's going to bite you. I promise you, it's going to be a bad day. And if you don't wanna pull like 12 hour shifts for like weeks to repair the damage, you know, definitely patch your servers. Yeah
1: and not just against the, the high-profile vulnerabilities that gets those fancy names that we mentioned before. It's not just Spectre and Meltdown and Sequoia now. Those ones will get the, the limelight. Those ones will get the, the news headlines. But for each one of those, there are 100 that pop up that will never get assigned a fancy name, will never have a cool logo, will never have a website of their own, and they will affect your systems just as much. Yep. If you're really interested into security and and into best practices in security, you need to keep your eye out for all the other ones, not just this. These ones will get the news, but the other ones will get your servers. Yeah.
0: yeah. Do you think there's ever going to, and I I think I know what you're going to say, but do you think there's ever a time where you know, a hacker is looking for that in the news. They're lo- they're waiting for that vulnerability with that awesome logo and hilarious name to, to where everyone's going to be stuck talking about this. It's all over the blogs and the news. And while everybody's busy handling that, they're going to use their secret, you know, hack or whatever they have. And they're just going to go to town because everyone's looking at the wrong thing. Um, you, how, how much of a problem do you think that might be?
1: Well, (laughs) that's a very big problem, especially because most hacks and most attacks, they don't rely on the new zero day exploit that was just announced. They will exploit something that has been laying there on that server that they've been monitoring for months now or years now. So it's not just the the most recent one that gets exploited. They'll know if you update it or not because that signature will change and they will try to to hack you if you still have servers with uh, And patch vulnerabilities lying around those are the ones they go after and the new ones they they are dangerous because they get the limelight and because people will not immediately patch them but it's the other ones that are in most servers and that they will be the the entryway for your systems
0: it just seems like the clever names while they're fun to be completely honest are just causing more harm than good and just making people focus on those. And, And like you were saying, I think the other vulnerability is just don't get enough attention. The media loves this because anything with the buzzword on it. I mean, man, that's clickbait right there. You know, Heartbleed yeah. will own all your servers. Oh my God, Patch Now, uh, Rowhammer, and all these other ones. It's it's like, oh boy. Um, it, it seems like that might have slowed down a little bit, but now that I've I've said that, I'm sure it's only a matter of time before we're on this podcast and we have to be talking about one of these crazy named vulnerabilities. I'm it's sure. The choir
1: popped out less than two weeks ago. And oh, that yeah. was another, yeah. And that was another ridiculous one. I know how they analyze the code. These are code tools that they just look for variables that are assigned to one type and then converted to another with a lower precision. The, anyway, the the vulnerability itself to be exploited it requires a pass whose total length has to be over one gigabyte. The length, the number of characters in the pass, has to be more than one gigabyte. Oh. And if you get that. And you, <laughs> and you mount that directory somehow, you will manage to write a specific value in memory at a specific position that you'll know beforehand. So you have to have some other code waiting for that change already loaded in memory. And then when the stars align and you get all that in place, then you'll have some way to assess higher privileges on the system. Wow. And well, they I... got that fancy name. It's Sequoia because it's very big, like the tree, and all that. But yeah. In practice, it's not that easy to exploit, but uh, wow. that got the limelight. And behind that, several other Apache ones just went unnoticed, and those were probably more widespread.
0: Wow, and easier is, to exploit. so crazy.
1: And this was discovered by looking at the code and some variables changing uh, types there. Uh, the thing there is that that, that pass will be stored in a structure inside the, the 64-bit integer. Mm. And then at some point, during some other call and some other part of the kernel, it gets converted into a lower precision value, so just 32 bytes. So you'll lose some, and there will be some overflow, and then that will cause some issues elsewhere. And this is a long chain of events and you have to rely on some other functionality in the kernel. The, the Berkeley Packet Filter, the BPF, that lets regular users load code directly into the kernel, and run that code with kernel privileges. So basically, when you try to load some BPF code, and BPF code here can be used to directly affect network packets, or do some other type of operations. That's unimportant important for now when you load whatever code through BPF, the kernel will perform some security checks. They won't let you, for instance, access things that you weren't supposed to access, but they only look at the code during load time. So you load your code. And then when that change happens because of that long pass, it will change the code that you load before and convert it into something else that's no longer safe. And through that, you can actually exploit the system. So lots of things have to happen here. But, uh, yeah, it got all the publicity, it got all the limelight, it got the news, but several others didn't, and they were just as important or even more.
0: Yeah, and getting back to the main point, I mean, sometimes we have a really um, crazy name and it just steals everyone's attention and yeah. that can work against the security industry. It's just these um, people working on the front lines, they really have their work cut out for them, for sure. They do. And
1: again, going back to what I said previously, uh, CVs, they're cropping up more and more. It's getting harder and harder to track all of them, to track even the ones that directly affect the systems you're in. For example, all the the CVs that uh, affect the Linux kernel or the Linux distribution that you're using. Every day, it's more and more CVs that pop up. We're reaching a point where it's humanly impossible to to keep track of that manually. That happened some time ago. But even through tooling and through reporting every day of the new stuff that affects your servers, it's really tough to keep track of all that. So my word of advice regarding that is if you still haven't automated that, you really should look into automating the CV analysis and vulnerability checks. Because you won't be able to keep all that on your hands and keep all, that, all right. hold that on your head every day. That's really, really yeah. tricky to do.
0: And don't just assume an apt dist upgrade is going to protect you from everything just because you have all the patches and things. You know, there might be some additional things there that you have to keep in mind. There's other security measures which we'll especially cover in this podcast as we go because there's all kinds of best practices i mean we're talking about cves right now that that doesn't even get us started on open ssh best practices and and what ports should you open up to the public which i I answer none but that's another story um i mean obviously you have to sometimes but there's all these different things that um are accounting or you should take into an account and CVEs are the most important thing in my opinion because that'll get you an understanding of what's out there, what's happening, what are the hackers actually going after right now, keeping your eye on that and following some blogs and um, setting up an RSS feeder with um, a lot of these blogs that cover these things as they come out. That's also a very good thing to do as well because there's a number of those blogs out there that you should probably follow that would help you, you know, maybe not your only source, but definitely can get you a heads up if there's something coming out
1: and will make you look at things in a different view. Sometimes people just focus on what they want to see and what they are used to doing, and they have to look outside the box and think outside the box to, in these kinds of situations. For example, yeah. when you mentioned that apt update, something that really bites new means when they perform an update on a, on a library, on a shared library like OpenSSL, just to cover a vulnerability that popped up, you should know that you're just updating it on disk, you're not restarting the services. The services that are running that depend on OpenSSL, they are still using the old code. Until you restart them, you won't pick up the changes. Even if app tells you there are no more updates, you're still not protected.
0: I think it's really amazing. It it was amazing to me when I first started. And, And disclaimer, absolutely nobody should do what I'm about to mention, ever. But, as a new Linux person, of course, you know I have this um, server that i that I found. i it, I was just playing around with. It. it wasn't production, wasn't important. And I loaded Linux on there. I had um a web browser open. I was browsing some web pages, and I just disconnected the hard drive, SATA cable. I just pulled it. And it was amazing to me how much of the distribution still worked after pulling that SATA cable. Obviously, A lot of things were broken, but my web page was still there. My apps were still open because they were on disk. They're loaded into RAM, and they're running from RAM. Obviously, if I close an app and go to reopen it, it crashes. And really, really, really bad things will happen when you do this. It'll absolutely break things. But it was just the the way that I understood it, or actually, it's what made me understand just, just how important it is to keep in mind what's running in RAM because Linux is very, very focused on that. Like Windows from what I understand, would probably blue screen instantaneously when you pull that SATA cable, but a Linux system is going to keep on going for a little while longer. Um, and obviously, that's not something anyone should do, but it does kind of frame the thought that when things are running in memory, they're running in memory, you update it on disk, the next time you open that app, sure, maybe it'll be in memory then, but you know, you have to close the app or reopen it, reboot the server, Better yet, just use something that um, gives you a reboot-free update experience, which TuxCare will definitely help you out with. Um, And I absolutely want to mention that because um, you really should be taking this into consideration that just updating it by itself, that's not enough. Either you need to reboot or you need some kind of um, live patch service that'll um, inject those newly updated Mm -hmm. um, libraries into memory. Yeah, absolutely.
1: That's basically what we do. We we facilitate that operation. Um, But again, I really don't want to to be pushy on this. This is not the the goal of the podcast. We mentioned this because it's topically related. Um, Getting back on track. Mm -hmm. This is a very, very tough problem to to manage properly. Uh, If you find security, interesting, and if you want to learn more about CVEs and all that, there's a wealth of information out there. You should really look into some of the things that Greg Crow Hartman has to say about it. He's one of the the people, the top people on the Linux kernel. He has some very strong opinions about this and other things, but yeah, he's very respected in the medium, and I really look up to him on these matters. And uh, yeah, CVs are probably reaching the limits of their usefulness because there are just so many of them.
0: We should really try to find
1: Yeah, it's getting overwhelming. We should really, as an industry, try to find some other way of tracking vulnerabilities. But again, this is the the current de facto standard. And it's not going away today or tomorrow, this year, or the next. So we'll have to deal with them in the future. But probably something new will come along at some point.
0: Oh, well, I'm sure they will. I think for an administrator, it's just really important to um, understand your, your organization's policy about patching, number one, but just also taking into consideration, too, if you kind of feel like there's some weak areas in this policy, maybe some things could be um, improved upon, let your management know about that if there's um, something you think isn't really getting a, a good service in that policy or um, it is especially bad if you have no policy at the company at all, uh, that's an even worse problem, but there, there has to be an order of operations here, there, you know, looking at the vulnerability, assessing the vulnerability, figuring out what the scope of it is, what's required to update, how important is it actually, how likely is it to um, impact your organization negatively? You have to understand those things and be able to pay attention to those things because you don't really wanna get that call that you've been hacked and it's something that you feel like you should have probably paid attention to or or would have been on your radar if you were reading the appropriate blogs. Another thing too is there's going to be some blogs out there that are very clickbait heavy. I don't really feel like those are a good source for information because some of them might give you some information, but those blogs, in my opinion, are probably only going to show something if it's um, really newsworthy. Meanwhile, you have a bunch more CVEs out there, so um, definitely pay attention to those. Follow the blogs. Don't use that as your only source, but at least um, you know, do your best to pay attention to that. Be a part of the community, not just um, you know watcher, and, and you know engage in community discussions about security. You'll learn more, and um, absolutely. And I I know this is probably outside the scope. But I always like to make sure people know. Don't just try to do a penetration test at your company without your management knowing about it. Um, You know, I understand you might want to pad your resume. I discovered 15 vulnerabilities at my company, but you don't really want to be walked out the door if they discover, um, you know, like you're trying to hack the company or anything. (laughs) So use common sense and um, definitely research and take CVE seriously.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice, Jay.
0: Is there anything else that we missed? I think that was a lot of information, a lot of great information about CVEs that will certainly help people.
1: There's tons of other things you can mention about CVEs. One that we didn't mention, I talked about this national national vulnerability database. Mm -hmm. The national part there is very interesting because it's just the US. The, the other countries, they obviously have their own internal policies about disclosing vulnerabilities. And it's probably unlawful on those countries to send that information to the US. So yeah. other registries will have other information. China has registries. Germany has registries. France has, re- has registries. It's not just the US. The numbers should be unique across them because there is some communication between them. But um, there may be more information on others than just the the national ones for the US.
0: That's definitely good to know. Good to know. All right. So, wow, that was a lot of information. But I really like the way that that was laid out, because I feel like if I didn't already know about CVEs, Um, I definitely would know um, the required things. I think that puts our, um, you know, gives our audience a a great foundation to explore CVEs, understand what they are, why they're important. And um, as a foundational topic, I I think that was indeed a great fit for episode number one. So, um, you know, let us know what you guys think when you listen to this. If there's anything, you know, have any questions, comments, Future topic ideas, definitely leave them in the comments. We would love to read those and um you know, know what you guys think and what you guys want to see, or in this case, here. Thanks for so, yeah, thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate it. A um, you know, like I said before, we're gonna have a more um, exact time in the future as we kind of get into the status quo. But so far, so good. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode, which we will have out in about two weeks from now. And we'll see you then.
1: Bye.